right, it's my privilege this morning at, uh, as those guys go. Um, I got a chance to hear this in the first service, and some of the stories you're getting ready to hear are just unbelievable what God is doing. Um, you know, you can count on your hand when you have friends that are real covenant friends, and we like to pick on one another, and sometimes we fight like brothers. Um, but we, um, I have been privileged to have a front row seat to see what God is doing in Sean's life. And I'm going to tell you right now, um, he, he's going to tell you a little bit about it. I don't want to spoil it, but he is reaching and impacting closed nations around the globe that no one else will go to. And God is opening the door supernatural. He carries a boldness and a courage to go to the places that no other American will go and to carry the love and light of the love of God. And, uh, and I'm telling you, it, I am blown away at what God is doing through his life, through his ministry, through his wife, his kids. I was in Iraq with him, I guess, what, about a year and a half ago or almost two years ago and got to witness what they're doing. And it's incredible, literally in the war zone of Iraq. And so this morning, I, I thought it would be really cool not to, not necessarily to honor him, but let's honor what he has sown into the kingdom of God and the nations around the world. And let's stand to our feet and give a warm welcome to Sean Foyt from Redding, California. Thank you. So good to be here. Man, it is a good day to be alive. It's a good day to have espresso. I haven't had enough, but I um I want to share this morning uh, on the concept. I don't know, just praying into this for the weekend. I was uh, up in Tampa this week, and we were worshiping together and commissioning uh, just a whole group of evangelists to go bring the love of Jesus out to the city, and people got healed and saved and freed, and it was it was just so fun. I love. Every time I come to this region, it seems like I hear another 50 more prophetic words about the things God's going to do, which is awesome because everybody, especially in this part of Florida, thinks their city is like ground zero for revival, and all of them are probably right, you know? And I love, I love what God's doing. I love the unity. I love, I love the amazing things that are happening, and... But I want to share this morning, I, I kind of, I feel like we're in this space right now, uh, you know, over the last few weeks, you know, of watching the homecoming of Billy Graham, and I feel like, you know, I don't have time to, to break into the theology of all that, but I feel like when these, some of these generals in the body of Christ, when they graduate, I feel like there's a, 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 a moment for us to receive something. Anybody with me? I mean, I have never heard the gospel preached more in my entire life on the mainstream media than when Billy Graham went to heaven. I am like, even in his death, it's like, I don't know if you saw Good Morning America, like some of these shows that are known to not ever do this. Uh, Kathleen Gifford got up there and preached a dang sermon. I was like, I mean, you got to go back and watch it. I thought she was going to give an altar call, literally. I mean, homegirl just started preaching, like, the paint off the wall in that place. And, and, and it, you know, USA Today did a 15-page spread, and, and it's just like the whole world celebrated this general. And, you know, the amazing thing about it, I was actually, 
I was with some writers in LA and we were, you know, we were writing and, and dreaming of, you know, the anthems for the global church. It's, I just love doing that. I love, you know, Bill Johnson, he teaches us in our environment in writing, you know, where do you want the church to be in 10 years? Sing that song. Sing those songs, sing those prophetic songs. And we're, you know, putting together these words and articulating themes of justice and righteousness and healing. And, and anyway, when we were doing this, I was with these amazing songwriters. We, uh, you know, Billy Graham passed away and we were there in LA and we were, we were on the, in the West, in West Hollywood, in the hills of West Hollywood. And, and we spent one entire day after that, just talking about the global church. And we actually binge watched, uh, we binge watched like all the documentaries we could find on the life of Billy Graham on Netflix. I think there's four, you know, and some of them are from the eighties and they're, they're, but they're great, you know, and they all say the same consistent message. Uh, they all say the same thing. And, you know, when we were there and we were looking out actually on one of the nights we were driving on the Hollywood Hills and we were looking out and you could see the LA Coliseum from that vantage point. And that was kind of where, you know, the notoriety and the fame of Billy Graham really took off with the, with the revival crusades that were happening in the LA Coliseum. And of course I wasn't alive there. Some of you probably in this room were, but in the early 60s, uh, they had over 130,000 people coming a night. It was supposed to be for, I think, four or five weeks. It ended up going like 11 weeks straight. 130,000. Those crowds, those numbers of crowds still have not been beaten today. Not a sporting event, not a concert. The number one most attended gathering in the historic LA Coliseum is Billy Graham Crusades. And tens of thousands of people were swept into the kingdom. You know, then he went to New York and Madison Square Garden. It was supposed to go for, I think, five or six weeks. And it ended up going a hundred days straight. <laughs> in Madison Square Garden. A hundred days of every single night, people, throngs of people flocking to Madison Square Garden to hear the gospel message. And what was interesting, you know, as we, as we were watching these documentaries and just diving into his life and hearing foreign dignitaries around the world and presidents flock. And, you know, you, you saw, I think it was last week when his casket was in, in, the, in the rotunda in the capital, uh, in the, you know, the most historic, historic, esteemed, established place. Only three, you know, uh, citizens, non-government, you know, citizens have ever had their casket laying in that place. And you saw that people from across, Democrats, Republicans, people from nations around the world paying their respects. One of the number one things that was mentioned about his life wasn't about his, you know, long list of accomplishments and his, how many people were saved and how many crusades and how many whatever, but it was about that he was a man that was faithful that he was consistent, that his message never changed. You know, he, he, he was a, an advisor to 13 presidents. 13 presidents, both Democrats, both Republicans. He stood with them in their darkest hour. I mean, one of my favorite stories was his time with, with Nixon through Watergate. Nixon said, the only person that would stand by me was Billy Graham. Even though, even though he knew what I had done, even though he knew what had happened, he was there standing when my helicopter took off. You know, that epic, iconic photo of Nixon's helicopter taking off from the White House lawn as he resigned. You know, Billy Graham was standing there. 
And you see the faithfulness and the persistence uh, of the life of this man. And I just feel like we're in this moment where, you know, and I want to read this quote. This is what I posted on Instagram, actually, uh, with a picture of him and JFK together, which is, it was such an iconic picture. And it was this quote that said, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. And I just feel like, man, I feel like in this hour in America, I feel like that God is stiffening our spines. I feel like it's a season where it's like, will the Will, will the real Christians stand up? Like, <laughs> will the real people that believe the real stuff that are willing to, to stay the long haul, willing to remain faithful through the highs and the lows? And I want to share this morning about, the, I guess you could title this, the now and the not yet. Living in the tension of the kingdoms here and now, but yet so many of the things we're longing for, dreaming through, br- breakthroughs in, in areas of healing as we were praying or, or miracles or provision, like we're living in the tension of the not yet. We're living in, the, in this place, and this is our life as believers. This is, you know, I, I love it. Even the commissioning of Jesus, it's like, <laughs> it's, like, it's like the heavens open. Okay, he hasn't done anything cool yet, by the way. He's 30 years walking the earth. No one knows who he is. He's just a carpenter. He's, he's, he's I mean, he, 30 years, he does nothing. I mean, I, I could preach a series on that. What the heck is happening, Jesus? Like, people are dying all around you. There's all this opportunity to do ministry. And for 30 years, you're silent. And then your own mom manipulates you into your first miracle. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's just, that's just theology. God tells his mom, I'm not ready yet. This is God speaking to his mom. Like, mom, I'm not ready. She goes, I'll tell you when you're ready. You know? <laughs> I mean, that, I'll, Dan, I'll give that to you as a Mother's Day sermon. I'll just sow that into your life. Moms can manipulate God, okay? There, there's, some, there's some theology for you. Yep, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, when he comes on the scene, he hasn't done anything cool yet. You know, the heavens open and the, the voice of the Father speaks and the dove and everyone hears it. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I love how the affirmation of his father came before he had performed any miracles. And, and his graduation present was, okay, now you're going to the desert. Boom. You're, it's amazing. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Desert. <laughs> it's like, huh? You know, and we as believers, we sometimes we buy into a really plastic theology where, where we, don't, we don't have a, a, a worldview of suffering. We don't have a, a mentality in our life of like sticking it out in the hard times. And, and we, we like it when it's convenient, when things are good. And even in worship, like I'm, I feel, lately I've been feeling more sometimes the presence of God come, come on me after the worship time because I didn't feel jack when I was leading worship. People are like, are you in the glory zone when you're up there? And I'm like, sometimes, but a lot of times, no. I miss my family, or I'm hungry, or I'm jet lagged, or I need more coffee, and I'm just singing. I'm just trying to be faithful, even if I don't feel anything. And then I feel the presence of God come on at the end when I'm back in my hotel. I'm like, wow, you know, like our faith is so much more than feelings. And I want to read, I want to read, and you know, 
in Hebrews 11, real quick, you know, the, the Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith, and one of the reasons I love this book is it's so raw. Of course, it's listing the accomplishments of, of the, the heroes throughout the faith, and it, you know, it talks about, uh, you know, Abraham, and it talks about uh, Noah, and it talks about all these legends, you know, and Abel, and how they, and they stood, and they, they, they didn't waver, and Enoch, and da-da-da-da-da, and then it says in verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. That's like sobering. It's like they're in this hall of faith because they still had faith when they died. It's like, you know, finally somebody that finished well. I think why Billy Graham, why it's so powerful is we're like, OMG, somebody that finished well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's possible. <laughs> you know, somebody that actually finished his race strong. Somebody that was without scandal and without da-da-da and without, and it doesn't mean that we all go through temptation, we all go through times or whatever, but so many, even in the Bible, they just wussed out at the end. They gave up. You know, so many of the kings throughout the history of Israel, it's filled with guys that started out really strong and at the end they just, you know. But it says that these men, they hadn't even seen everything that was promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Verse 14, people who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. I love how it starts and it's, and it's encouraging. It's saying, listen, they still had faith when they died, even though they hadn't seen the fullness of the promises fulfilled. They lived in the tension. They embraced the tension. I love, um, you know, the story of Abraham. Turn to Romans 4 real quick. I, I love, you know, I want to just harp on him a little bit because he's so raw. Like, he's, he's sitting there, and I love the, one of my favorite stories is in Genesis when he's sitting there in the tent and he's looking at his hundred-year-old wife. <laughs> and he's going, really, God? <laughs> like, like, here's the thing. We're addicted to prophetic words a lot of times in this current age. Like, we can't get them fast enough to fill our journals and our notebooks and everything. The guys in the Bible got like two their whole life. Like, Noah, build an ark. Just cuz. Water's going to fall from the sky. A hundred years from now. And Noah has to live his life on a hundred year old prophetic word. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? Of course he was probably a tad bit of a madman. I mean, a hundred year old prophetic word. Abraham, you're going to be the father of nations. You know, his wife turns 80. He goes, Oof, 90. His wife turns 100. Finally, he's sitting in a tent looking at his hundred year old wife who's super wrinkly. And he goes, God, are you looking at the same thing I'm looking at? Because you gave me this promise. You know, I love in that story how the Lord doesn't even respond 
to his agitation and his offense and his complaining. He doesn't even respond in the atmosphere of where he is because he's currently surrounded by doubt and discouragement and his circumstances. He can't even see clearly. And that's why God, you know, in a fun God, wild way, says, Abraham, why don't you step outside of your tent? Why don't you come out from under your limitations? Because all you see right now, I'm not even going to speak to you, because all you see right now is your 100-year-old wife. And I want you to count the stars. (laughs) God goes, let's count the stars. It'll be fun. And he pulls Abraham, and this is what worship does. This is why I'm like, I'm so like, you know, 24-7 worship. We give our life to this, like all over the world. Because worship, the the atmosphere of of worship and presence pulls us out of our circumstances. Where we come in here and we've been beat up during the week and we have the nonstop, you know, Kool-Aid of the media trying to tell us this and this and this. We're pummeled by information. And all of a sudden, somebody strums a G chord on the guitar and, ah, it's like we can breathe again. It's like we remember who we are again. It's like the weight of the world falls off of our shoulders. This is why the worship movement is going viral. It's just going to increase. Get used to it. Songs are going to be longer. They're going to be louder. It's not going to be more tame. It's just getting more crazy. But I love how in the story in Genesis, I think it's 37, that that God begins to speak to him and, and he reminds him, hey, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham is recognized because he didn't give up. And in Romans 4, it says, against all hope, verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. In this season of tension, he embraced the reality that there was no hope. Like he wasn't airy-fairy living in, you know, Christian glory land. Like he was like, no, this is actually a season of no hope. But in a season of no hope, I'm going to have hope. And it says, so become, without weakening in his faith, I love this point, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. With that weakening in his faith, he faced his current circumstances. I think sometimes, like, this is kind of where the word of faith kind of movement can get a little wonky, you know, is, is when we don't actually face the circumstance. Like, we have to call the circumstance what it is. Whether it's cancer, whether it's, you know, a financial hardship, or whatever it is, we have to face reality. I have to wake up at 6.30 every morning. You know why? Because my three-year-old bangs me on the head asking for cereal. (laughs) Some of my millennial friends, I'm like, you know what could do you some good in your life? My three-year-old waking you up. I don't have the option to pretend he's not there. (laughs) He doesn't go away quickly. You know, I have to face the reality that I have a hungry child that until I get him a bowl of some stinking cereal, he's not going to leave me alone. Like, we have to be believers that are anchored in reality. But that doesn't mean we have to weaken in our faith. Like, we can say, as we do when we go into Iraq, ISIS is demonic and they're real. And they're a real spirit that's devouring people. And I can't just pretend to eat my Wheaties at home and hope they don't exist. No, they really exist. 
And it takes believers that are willing to stand in that gap, in that tension and say, you know what? This is actually really happening, but I'm going to pull in a reality from a different realm. Without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, da-da-da-da-da, yet he did not waver, verse 20. This is like Billy Graham to the core. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. But was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. He was fully persuaded. He, he fully understood what he was up against, but yet he understood who was inside of him and the reality of the promise. And guys, we're called to live in this tension. We're called to live as people that understand in, in areas of crisis in our own life, in crisis in the nations. Like we are people that stand in the gap. We're the intercessors. We're the ones that broker a different reality into a situation that doesn't exist. I, uh, you know, grew up, my parents were both med- full-time medical missionaries. I was telling this in the first service, you know, I... I love that quote. I think it's by Hudson Taylor, John Wesley, one of those guys where it says, if, if God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to become a king. Amen. And uh, that's, that's what I would say is my primary goal in life above everything. And writing music's part of that. And <clears throat> ministering's part of that. And writing books is part of that. But man, in, at the core of who I am, I just feel like I'm, that's what I'm called to be. And I remember the moment in my life when, when that calling was really solidified. I went with my dad on a trip, and we went up the Amazon River. And I was 12 years old, and I, this was my first kind of cross-cultural experience. And we took a boat up the kind of the fingers of the Amazon River to these crazy unreached tribes. And I didn't even know people like this existed. I mean, it was like straight out of National Geographic. Like, no power, no running water. This is like real jungle, you know, people. And when we showed up to these villages, like crazy healings and miracles would happen because they just happen in that environment because people just believe, you know. They don't have options. And, and I saw demons flying out of people and I just, I was like, it was crazy, you know? And I, and, and I wanted to get baptized. I hadn't got baptized up to that point. And, and I really felt on the last day of our trip, all that I experienced, I just wanted to be baptized. And so we went into the, into the Amazon river and there was a tribe that had just planted their first church and were just writing their first ever worship songs in their Amazonian dialect. And they began to sing during the baptism. And I remember, you know, going, my dad and, and one of the chief elders, you know, baptizing me. And I literally, I could see piranhas swimming around in the water. Seriously. It was like one of those baptisms of faith. Like you're going down, you don't know if you're coming up, you know. Um, and when, we, when I was being baptized, I, I came up out of the water. And I, I knew that God had called me for missions and nations. And I knew specifically it was, it was to target really hard, unreached areas of the world. And so I went home and I just became obsessed over maps and I would study nations and I would, you know, I got that, that, uh, I don't know how many of you guys had that, that Jesus freak book of martyrs, you know, and I read through that like five times and read all the stories and was so inspired. And, and, and then, you know, I began to research like voice of the martyrs 
borders, the most closed nations, and I made a list of the five most closed countries and, you know, promised myself that I would go there and begin to pray every day for God to open doors. And I think I've been to four out of those five in my life, which is pretty cool. And I wanted to show some pictures of the top two most closed countries in the world and share a little bit about the faith of the underground church. Um, because I feel like part of the reason why I go to these countries is really not because I have a ton to offer. It's because I want to be a fly on the wall. And I, I, I actually ask them every time I go, I'm like, can you just pray for me? Can you pray that I would be a real Christian? Can you pray that I would experience, you know, the, the depth, the profound depth of the gospel that you experience? And what's funny is that I feel like I get deposited a rich amount of things and then I teach them about the Trinity and their their minds are like, God is three in one? What? You know, it's like, but yet they're planning thousands of churches around the world and moving in signs and wonders, but they don't even have basic theology like what we hear every day. You know, it's it's profound for them. But a few years ago, I got a chance to go into North Korea, which is number one on the list, which I feel like it's significant to share this story. I haven't talked about North Korea in years. But I felt like on the heels of the announcement that happened a few days ago, which I never thought in my life would happen, that a president of America would meet with the leader of North Korea. I mean, I hope you guys aren't missing this moment. This is outrageous. Like, historic. Like, it's just kind of ridiculous, you know? Um, but this is from inside North Korea. We were there a few years ago, and, um, and we got to sneak in. I won't go into the story of how that all happened, but the Lord really sent us there, and we got the, the words we were getting was uh, ambassadors of peace, you know, was to, to release and pray for a peace that passes all understanding, that God would... And this was even before, you know, the crazy stories of North Korea having nukes pointed at us. And so, you know... I you got to be happy when a nation that has a lot of nukes pointed at America is willing to have negotiations with our president. Like, should make you a little happier than you seem this morning. Like, you should be kind of happy about that. I mean, I know you're in Florida on the other side, but those things can go pretty far, you know? And trust me, I've been on the ground there. It's, they're crazy. Like, there's no rules there. There's no diplomacy there's no like, let's work it out. Like they don't do that there. It's, it's, it's wild. And so when we were there, this is a picture from Pyongyang, which by the way, little background, Pyongyang was the epicenter of the Korean revival that happened right on the heels of Azusa Street. A million Koreans came into the kingdom in Pyongyang, North Korea. Wow. Billy Graham's wife went to Bible school in Pyongyang, North Korea. Wow. Crazy. Go to the next picture. This is one of the statues that they have to come and bow down and kiss the feet every year. And they have all kind of weird stuff like that. Go to the next one. This is in an orphanage. Uh, we, were, we actually were able to sneak into this orphanage and, um, in North Korea and really experience the craziness of the, you know, the hunger and the, the devastation that these people... I mean, it's very visible everywhere. But in this little orphanage, all these kids, these parents, I mean, they don't tell us what happened to their parents or who they were. Um, and, but they're there and we were able to go in with our guitar and it's unprecedented. I mean, we literally broke every rule that they gave us 
and we did it with a smile on our face. We brought guitars in, we worshiped, we prayed, we declared Jesus, we walked around speaking in tongues. Like, it, we were just wild, you know? I look back on it now, I'm like, I don't know how we made it out of there. But we were worshiping in this orphanage, and, and we just got, we were just laying hands on these kids, just prophesying as we went. And it's, it's cool how, you know, Jehovah's sneaky, you know? He, like, will find his way to get people in to do his bidding. And, and this was really a profound moment. Go to the next picture. This is uh, at the DMZ, the demilitarized zone on the North Korean side. So the normal thing would be to visit it from the South Korean side. And it's very not normal to visit it from the North Korean side. And so we were definitely the only Americans and only white people that we saw at all in the whole country. But what was funny was walking up to the border and looking at South Korea, which is that white building, and seeing the jaws drop of everybody as they were looking at us especially the American soldiers looking at us with our guitars and long hair. What are these guys doing over there? Um, anyway, but we, the Lord opened this crazy door through favor in the government there. It's a wild story for us to go into the, the blue room, which is the room, go to the next picture, which is the room of negotiations where since the 70s, they've tried to bring peace between North and South Korea. They've tried to bring, you know, prime ministers and governors and secretaries of state to broker peace. And they've been, they've, they've failed. Um, and so this building has sat here since the 70s. And we got this cl special clearance to go in this room. And inside of this room is the actual border between North and South Korea. It straddles the middle of the room. And so the idea is, is that the leaders from the South come on one side of the table, the leaders of the North come on the other side, and they negotiate. Well, when we were there, they hadn't done this in decades. And so we went in there and the Lord just started giving us songs, just speak reconciliation, speak breakthrough, sing peace over this place. And so we hijacked the room for about seven minutes before we got in really big trouble and my guitar got confiscated. Um, but we accomplished what we came there for. And we stood in that room and we said, there will be a day when peace is brokered. And I'm standing to you cannot believe the news I'm hearing from the last few days. And I'm telling you, God is faithful. Amen. He's faithful to do it. Go, and so go to the next picture. This soldier was actually saying no more pictures. <laughs> and I, I caught his hand while he was up like this. True story. True story. He, he was going like this. He was so mad at me. And my buddy just snapped it at the right time. And <laughs> looks like he's waving. He doesn't look happy, but he looks like he's waving. Uh, go to the next picture. Um, and then just a few months ago, um, I, got, I, I got the privilege and opportunity, actually just a few weeks ago this year, I got the privilege to go into the number two most closed nation in the world. North Korea's number one, uh, number one by Voice of the Martyrs, number one by human rights organizations, uh, number two in Voice of the Martyrs, and number two in all human rights violations is Saudi Arabia. And um, they, they don't, Saudi Arabia is a nation, they don't, they don't play games either. I mean, they still behead Christians. It's strict Sharia law. I mean, it is the, the, the epicenter of, of Islam. They set the standard for what, 
for the lifestyle and the prayers and the ideology of billions of Muslims around the world. Everything goes back to Saudi Arabia. Everything goes back to Mecca. And so I had always had this desire in my heart, God, I want to see you worshipped in the land of Saudi Arabia. And for years I'd prayed into God. I, you know, tried to meet with people to get visas and trying to find a way. And it's just, there's just no way to, to go there unless you're in a really closed compound with an oil company. And even that is really difficult to get. Anyway, a few months ago, the Lord just began to stir up that word in me. Like, do you believe this? This prayer that you've prayed since you were 12. You know, this nation's still on the list. And I said, all right. And I kept pressing into it. And long story short, which is a wild story, which is a whole nother sermon. Um, I got a five-year multiple entry visa that I've never met a single person that has this visa, like ever. And I know quite a lot of people that do a lot of stuff in organizations around the world. Just the favor of God. I could go, I could fly in there tomorrow if I wanted on this visa. I mean, it's, it's unprecedented. And the kind of the purpose and the reason behind it is very obscure and random and weird. And I got to like pretend that I'm like some business high roller guy, you know, when I go in there and I pull my hair back. Anyway, I can look like that. I can kind of, um, but anyway, when I got the chance to go into Saudi Arabia just a few months ago, I, my, my deepest heart's desire was to connect with the underground church. I wanted to see what God was doing. I had read the, 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 you know, the data and seen that there's very few Christians there, there are very few churches. And I really expected to meet with three or four believers in a room, you know, probably really dejected, really like secretive people and whatever. But I just wanted to hear their story. And I was so surprised, you know, when we landed there, again, I, I kind of just, we, you know, we could have shot like a, like a t reality TV show on this, but I was walking around the streets of these cities, which is like strict Sharia law, full burqa, and I'm this white dude with long hair, and people are just pointing at me, like, they're just like, who are, what are you, how did you get here, like, and so I would just sit down, and like, I was just sitting down having shawarma with these guys, you know, these are like teenage dudes, and, and we're just sitting there having shawarma, and it's amazing how joy can break through barriers, like joy can reset minds on how they approach like people. Like there's something about joy that's contagious and that's the weapon that I use most of the time. So I sit down, I don't know Arabic, but we're just kind of laughing with these guys and I'm putting my hands on them. And while I'm putting my hands on them, I'm going, Jesus, encounter them, shuck it up. You know, they, they have no clue that's happening. But but they, they, love ha they love us hanging around. They love, they love hanging around. They invite us into their... I mean, some dude, some Saudi super wealthy baller Saudi dude pulled up. I don't have this picture on here, but he pulled up in his, in his crazy custom Bentley, you know, that was like gold-plated. And he like asked me to come into his car and check it out. And these three women in the back, because they all have to sit in the back with full burkas and getting pictures with me. And it's like wild, right? Like crazy. Um, but one of the things that the, the most impactful thing to me was when I started to meet with these, when I finally met with these pastors, go to the next picture, um, I begin to hear the stories and, you know, I have a deep desire. I believe, you know, Malachi 111, that from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, worship is going to flood the earth. And it says every place, which means that there's not a square inch of real estate on the earth that is given over to the enemy. And this is important for Christians to develop a theology where we don't give Satan nothing. Nothing. 
He doesn't get a war zone. He doesn't get a red light district. He doesn't get a part of our city. We don't abdicate anything to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so we look at cities like Mecca, which people say are impossible. It can't happen. You know, it's too difficult. It's, you know, they'll, they'll cut your head off. It's, and we say, God, even that city will worship. And I actually, I, we, we made a trek there and I was like, I was like firm on going into, into Mecca and I had this whole plan about how we we're going to do it. I was going to get in the trunk and anyway, true story, which non-Muslims cannot are forbidden to go within the boundaries of Mecca. I mean, it's like a strict, strict law there and it's like punishable seriously. Um, and I was still trying to do it. And then the voice of my wife came in my head, you know, my wife who's eight and a half months pregnant right now and is like, don't do anything stupid. And it's like, oh. so I, I, we ended up not going to the last checkpoint, which we were going to anyway, but we went as close as we could in this sign. And we just, I just, we pulled over on the side of the road and I'm just like, man, I just got to worship over this city. We just got to sing over Mecca. The next day I met a pastor that was a former imam leader that was a high up leader in the mosque, the main mosque in Mecca. Jesus began appearing to him as a man in white every day for a month. Like I heard this guy's story. Like I've never read this story anywhere. I've never seen these stories. I've never heard this even existed. And here's this dude, one of the top guys in the top mosque in the world. And you know, Holy Spirit's not, not afraid of those places. You know, <laughs> he's, he's not too concerned, you know. He walks in to the mosque every day for 30 days and encounters this guy. Still, the guy still doesn't know who he is, still, still is just so confused. But all of a sudden, he begins looking into the Quran. He finds there's over 600 contradictions of itself in the Quran. He begins to question things. He begins to ask the questions you're not supposed to ask. And then finally, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back was he, he took an illegal satellite from a friend across the country. And, you know, satellites are illegal there. You can't put them up in, in, in Mecca. It's like banned. And he put this satellite up. He just felt like he, he felt like he was supposed to do this, risk himself. He put this satellite up. He turns it on. The first channel that he ever hears is an Egyptian evangelist preaching the difference in Arabic between Jesus and Muhammad. It's this wild Egyptian evangelist. I don't know if you guys have heard of this guy. And he's like, he used to be a crazy Muslim. He's like, knows everything about the Quran. And he's debunking the myth, Jesus versus Muhammad. That's the very first thing he hears when he puts the satellite up. In that moment, he gets saved. He realized the man in white that's been visiting him is Jesus. He follows him. He leaves the mosque. And for the first time ever that we know of in all of human history, a church is planted inside of Mecca. That is a story that if that doesn't make you happy this morning, you have problems. We can pray for you because that is crazy town. I didn't even know that. I mean, I know all these stories and I heard it firsthand. One of the most powerful things, and this is kind of where I want to land the plane today is um, go to the next picture is I went to these to these leaders and, you know, these underground church leaders, we met together and there was a few of them and I was just hearing their stories and mostly just weeping at the... I mean, these are the most joyful people that I've ever met. And they have literally daily encounter hell. Literally every day they're risking their life. Death threats. They're 
kids have gotten abducted. They've had all of these threats against their life. They live in this tension. They live in this reality. But yet they're the happiest, most joyful, childlike people on the earth. And they came to me and they were so excited. They're like, we've never had somebody from the outside ever come to do worship and speak like you have. They've never, they said in the history of, of the country, like we've never seen that this is possible. And what we thought would be really fun is if we got worshipers together and we did a first ever worship concert. And I'm like, like how many, like, are there even enough Christians to do that? Like, let's just meet in a basement somewhere and like, yeah. And the guy's like, oh brother, many worshipers will come. Many will come. And I said, well, why would they come? They literally could lose their life to show up to sing songs. Like, why would they do that? And he goes, oh, brother, the fire is burning here, you know? And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm just believing him. And so what they did was they secured a venue out in the middle of the desert. And this is a wedding venue that's used for, you know, shakes. They have their weddings. It's kind of like a resort getaway wedding place. And they, they booked it as a wedding venue. And so everyone would think they're just having a wedding out there. They planned it on the weekend on Friday, which is Friday is their Sunday. And they began to invite people. And they began to get on. Of course, they can't make a conference promo <laughs> and blast it on Facebook, you know. Uh, but they're texting just text-chaining people around on secure servers, like, come out to this location. They kind of give them where it is. We're going to meet. We're going to worship. And I, I fully was like, listen, if there's 10 people that are there, this is more valuable to me than a stadium. Like, I will worship my guts out. I will, this is be the honor of my life is to worship with the underground church in Saudi Arabia. We drove out to the venue an hour before it started, and there was already 600 people inside. And I remember pulling up, and I'm just being really honest and vulnerable with you. I remember pulling up, and all of a sudden, I just got so convicted. I'm like, literally, I was leading worship at my church last week at Bethel. And during sound check, as I was pulling up to sound check early in the morning, it started raining. And I remember texting my wife. I'm like, babe, it's, just, it's raining today. Oh, my gosh. We have three kids, and you're going to have to walk them through the rain, and I'm going to have to run out in between services and help you, and you're probably going to have to park way down the hill because all these annoying visitors are here, and it's like, you know, and I'm just like, don't come to church. It's just too much. Just watch the live stream, you know, and here I'm pulling up to this venue where literally people are risking their life. They can get their heads chopped off, and they're waiting there an hour before the worship time starts excited, praying, pressing in. And during the course of the next hour, 500 more people show up that we can't accommodate. We have to send them back because there's nowhere for them to park. It would look suspicious. Da, 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 da. So over 1,100 people in the underground church in Saudi Arabia show up for a random worship thing in the middle of the desert. And I'm telling you guys, like, when you get with a group like this, like, they don't have a concept of warm-up songs. <laughs> they don't, it's not like, hey, welcome to church, just, just touch your neighbor, say, are you awake this morning? You know, it's like, they don't function like that. Like, 
They're risking their life. They're risking everything to come together to worship Jesus. They're psychotic. I mean, they don't stop. They just go after it. And just being in the atmosphere of that room, I felt like this quote from Billy Graham, like this, I felt like my spine was stiffened. I felt like there was a resolve in my heart. I felt like it was like I was remembering what this is all about again. And I feel like, and this really, this is my heart this morning. I believe God wants to impart into us like a steadfastness and a faithfulness and a resolve. You know, I, I am blown away how this climate that we live in right now, this politicalized, polarized climate, everybody's offended at everything. Like, I'm offended because you're offended because they're offended. I'm like, get over yourself. Stop crying about your offenses. Stop getting on Facebook whining about your offenses. Like, strap it up. Like, I don't know. I mean, I know some of you may think that's insensitive. And I'm around all these arty farty people all the time. And I love them. And I want to be with them on their journey. And I'm all about that. You know, I, we're all in a progress. We're all in a journey. We're all going somewhere, da, 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 all those statements. I understand. But at some point, it's like, do you either believe it or you don't? It's like, either you're in or you're out. Like, do you follow the way of Jesus or do you not? Like, there is a line that's in the sand. And Jesus lovingly welcomes us to cross it. And I just feel in this season, you know, looking at the life of Billy Graham, seeing this legend that, that stood the test of time, I feel this challenge to, to, to a generation of young people, to a generation of old people, to a generation of people that are over-churched and under-churched. Are we going to be the people of God that stick with it through the highs, through the lows, through the now, through the not yet, through the disease, through the sickness, through the times of lack. Paul said, I know what it's like to abase. I know what it's like to abound. I know what it's like to live in all seasons, but this I press on. Amen. This is who we are. This is the church. We don't wilt under pressure. We thrive. And so I just want to pray this Saudi fire over you <laughs> this morning. I want to pray that God would baptize us in the, just this, oh, just this difficult, hard weather place called Florida. Oh, man, I just, my heart breaks for you guys and what you have to endure day after day through the brutal winters. <laughs> okay, I'm done being sarcastic. But you know, it's like we can just settle into this coasting thing. And we just miss how wild the gospel really is. And how much passion it fills us with to keep going. Our greatest testimony as believers is that we don't give up. <laughs> if you don't quit, you win. <laughs> Even if you die, like it says that all of these heroes died with faith still. They didn't see all the promises, but they died with faith. They didn't die with offense. They didn't die with disillusionment. They died with faith. Billy Graham died with faith. 
Lord, I just pray this morning, God, baptize us as your church, as your bride, in just a spirit of confidence. I just pray for courage and boldness and strength to be imparted to us. I know that there's people in this room that are walking through really gnarly stuff. There's people in this room that are walking through really tumultuous seasons of hardship and turmoil. And, and you know, they may even say, you don't understand what I'm going through. You don't know what, what it's like in this, in this dark night of the soul. And I've been there. I've, I've actually walked through those seasons. I know it's difficult, but I'm telling you, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is one that sticks with you closer than a brother. There is an accessibility to a realm where you can, where you can access a place of grace to not give up, to not wilt, to not become isolated, to not become discouraged. There is a hope against all hope. Romans 4, there's a hope against all hope. And I pray this morning, even as we sang those words, let it not just be a cheap song that we sing on a screen. Let that word hope is alive. Let it become reality in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, over this church, this amazing church, the leaders here, I thank you for the incredible season that's to come, Lord, and buildings and dreams. And I thank you for all the nice gifts, gift baskets Dan's going to make for me later on. Thank you for all the, the plaques he's going to put on the church with my name on it. I just thank you, Lord. <laughs> just kidding. No, but I, I thank you for where this church is heading and the dreams that are in your heart. And I, and I pray, God, that, that if, if anything else, this church would be known as a place of great faith, great perseverance. In Jesus' name, amen.